Hey folks, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. We at Theopolis train men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we're continuing on in our series on the prophets, and here we'll be taking a look at the book of Daniel, chapter 8, in our walk through the book of Daniel. There is still time to register for our upcoming Theopolitan Ministry Conference here in Birmingham, Alabama. This conference will be on July 19th and 20th, and will cover a wide range of topics with talks from Peter Lightheart, Jeff Myers, and our fellows, all in the context of liturgical worship and psalm singing. For more information and for registration, we have a link down there in the show notes for you. We really want to thank you so much for listening, and we hope that you enjoy this conversation. And here are Peter Lightheart, Jeffrey Myers, Alistair Roberts, and James Bajon discussing Daniel chapter 8. Welcome to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm Peter Lightheart, and I'm here today with James Bijan, Alistair Roberts, and Jeff Myers. Brian Motes, as usual, is running the recording and will be editing and smoothing out our podcast and delivering it out to you, our listeners. Thank you for joining us. Uh, thank you for your support for the podcast and your interest in what we're doing here. Uh, we're in the middle of a series on prophetic literature, and in particular, we've been looking at the book of Daniel for the last several months. We've passed the halfway point of the book of Daniel. There are 12 chapters in the book, and we have uh, passed chapter 7 in the last couple of episodes. Uh, Chapter 7 is an important transitional chapter in the book. Uh, As we've mentioned a number of times, there are sections of of Daniel that uh, are in Aramaic, uh, sections of Daniel that are in in Hebrew. Uh, Chapter 7 is still in Aramaic, but it's it's looking ahead to the visions of Daniel. It's it's dated as uh, taking place in the reign of Belshazzar, as is the uh, vision in Daniel 8 that we'll talk about today in the next episode. Uh, so it's in Aramaic, so it's linked up with the previous several chapters, but it's one of the divisions of Daniel, and so it's linked up with the following chapters. And it gives us this kind of panoramic vision of what's happening in the period that's called the latter days, the, the times of the Gentiles, as Jesus calls them in the New Testament. The chapter we're looking at today and in the next episode, chapter 8, is linked with chapter 7 in a number of ways. Uh, Both of them have to do with future of empire. Chapter 7 had the four beasts coming up out of the sea, and we're going to see a couple of animals that are depicting different kingdoms and empires uh, in the vision in chapter 8. Both of them had to do with the rise and fall of those empires and uh, the coming of of the Lord's kingdom. Uh, Both of them have to do with a horn that uh, Daniel 7 focuses down eventually on a horn that comes from the head of the fourth beast. And we'll see that uh, a little horn appears again here in chapter 8. But uh, at the same time, we have have some links between the two chapters, between chapter 7 and 8, but there are still divergences. Uh, Chapter 7 gives us kind of panoramic vision of the period of time from Babylon on to, uh, as I believe, onto the Roman Empire and the coming of Christ and the deliverance of the kingdom to the Son of Man, which means Jesus and the saints. Uh, When we get to chapter 8 and then the following chapters, the visions are much more specific and focused. They're looking at particular periods of Israel's history, not this general panoramic vision of what's happening in the ancient world, but focusing specifically on uh, Israel. We we also have different kinds of beasts. We had predators in chapter 7, cherubic beasts, beasts that are uh, associated with the throne of God, specifically, or the kinds of beasts that are associated with the throne of God. Here in chapter 8, we have different beasts. We have a ram and then a goat, so two herbivores, as it were, sacrificial animals. 
we'll have to discuss what that the significance of that. We also have interestingly a different kind of body of water in the in the previous chapter, chapter seven, we saw a beast coming up out of a sea. In chapter eight, we're looking at these two animals, the ram and then the goat that are beside a canal or beside a river. So there's a stream versus a sea kind of contrast. And I think there's also contrast in what we see about the the uh, the saints. The saints in chapter seven are receiving the kingdom and dominion. Uh, they come in the form of the son of man, but the son of man is identified with the people of the saints of the highest one. And they receive the kingdom and dominion that have belonged to the beast. But in chapter eight, the saints appear mainly as an object of opposition. The horn that is going to exalt itself is going to trample them down. The horn is going to attack uh, not just the saints, but the holy place. And so there's much more emphasis in chapter eight on the suffering of the saints, uh, their eventual deliverance, but also their suffering on the way to that deliverance. I think one of the general things we can get from uh, chapter eight and the following chapters is the recognition that the period of history that follows the return from exile is part of redemptive history. We often talk about this as an intertestamental period. By that, we're meaning literally it's the time between the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament. So in that sense, it's intertestamental. But that can give us the impression that uh, this is a period of time that's kind of an in-between time that's not covered by God's covenantal history with his people. And that's not the case. We're seeing that already in Daniel 2 and Daniel 7 with the visions of these empires. Uh, We see that the whole period is governed by God and it's organized by God by these different empires. We're going to see that in a more focused way in chapter 8 and then again in chapters 10 through 12. Uh, We're going to see that this whole period is uh, within the scope of God's dealings with Israel. Uh, not it's not intertestamental in the sense of being between between covenants or as if it were a parenthesis or interruption of God's dealing with his people and with the nations. He's still doing that. Uh, and Daniel is giving us details about what's happening during that period uh, and how God is dealing with his people during that period. I won't go into detail, but there's a kind of chiastic structure that begins with a reference to Belshazzar's reign and uh, the chapter ends, chapter eight ends with Daniel talking about going back to the king's business. I think right in the center of the chapter, the appearance of Gabriel is kind of the turning point and Gabriel's encounter with Daniel. But I think we can also see this. Uh, James B. John has uh, pointed out in his essay on this chapter that you have a series of rises and falls through the chapter. Uh, the ram rises and then the, ch- the ram is defeated. The goat rises, the goat stands up, and then the goat is defeated. Uh, out of the, uh, in the aftermath of the goat's defeat, you have the little horn rising up. Uh, but then we find out at the end of the chapter that he'll be shattered without hands. Uh, he'll be shattered without human agency. Uh, and then in the second half of the chapter, Daniel seeks understanding, but Daniel himself goes through a kind of rising and falling. He, he seeks understanding, but then when Gabriel appears, he falls before Gabriel and becomes, uh, uh, goes, goes into a deep sleep. He goes into a kind of, uh, a kind of death. He's raised from that. But then at the end of the chapter, he's still in distress so there's another kind of uh, fall. So we have rises and falls running through the entire chapter that uh, that give a give a pattern and rhythm to the chapter. One of the uh, one of the things we can begin with is the question of how this how this uh, fits into the history of Belshazzar. We've seen the episode of Belshazzar's feast in chapter five. Chapter seven took place during the reign of Belshazzar. This takes place in the third year of the reign of Belshazzar, and a vision appears to Daniel and. Uh, any thoughts on how 
this vision is relevant to what uh, to that setting? How is how is this vision fit into the reign of Belshazzar? So when we're reading this passage, we can see that in the final four visions of the book of Daniel, or the four visions that conclude the book, there is one in the first year of Belshazzar, one in the third year of Belshazzar, one in the first year of Darius, and then one in the third year of Cyrus. And depending on how we identify Cyrus, if we identify him with Darius, then there are two in the reign of Cyrus. And these visions seem to be held together in various ways. They're concerning the same events in many respects from different perspectives. We can see parallels, for instance, between the leopard of chapter seven and then the um, goat in this chapter. And we can see other parallels that arise. But events are already underway that will lead to what happens in the um, second beast stage that we see in chapter seven and the second and third beast stage are the focus of this particular chapter so it seems to me that the events here are probably the sort of thing that fit in very neatly into first of all events that are already underway in Susa there's already this rising power and that rising power portends the rise of this new empire the, the Medes and the Persians and beyond that, there's also the fact that Daniel's probably been reflecting upon the meaning of the first vision for quite some time. He's seeing events underway that would lead to the downfall of that first beast. And he's seeing maybe a rising power already. And now at this point, there's the time for the second vision to come when his reflections would have led him to a point where he can take on some more um, information, as it were, some more revelation, and integrate that into what he's already seen. Yeah, so you were pointing out the fact that this is the reign of Belshazzar, but the prominent figure at the beginning of the vision is uh, represents Persia. So even though we're still in the Babylonian Empire, Persia's on the rise, the location in Susa also gives us Persia as the, uh, at least as the initial setting for this, even though the dating is in the time of Babylon. As you said, though, Peter, the whole vision is set against the backdrop of King Belshazzar, which feels significant. Obviously, the incident with his defilement of the temple vessels hasn't yet happened. But you wonder if Daniel has started to detect signs of worry in Belshazzar, ungodly tendencies and all the rest of it. As um, Alistair said, he, he's had a lot of time to ponder Chapter 7's um, vision and chapter eight is going to come to its climax with a, a defilement not of the temple vessels but of, of the temple itself and um you wonder to what extent a lot of these things daniel's daniel's was starting to get um uh, a foreshadow of in his own time one of the things that james jordan has observed is the way that we could even see the pattern of the beast playing out in miniature within babylon itself the movement between the different kings and maybe this would fit in with what we see in chapter nine, where there's the 70 years, and then that's followed by 70 weeks of years. The 70 years play out in miniature in some respects, what will later play out on the grand scale with the 70 weeks of years. And so in this micro-cron, as it were, um, Daniel has seen something of a foreshadowing of the greater patterns that would be playing out. And maybe that, again, is something that prepares him for the next stage of this vision. Do you all take him to be actually in Susa 
or is that part of the vision? I would think it's probably similar to the vision of Ezekiel in chapter 8 and 11 of his book, that there's a visionary journey to Jerusalem in that case, and this is a visionary journey to Susa, although presumably he was familiar with the place and would have recognized it merely from um, the visionary details. Now that does seem to fit the, uh, the phrasing of verse 2 better. I looked in the vision that came about while I was looking that I was in the citadel of Susa. It's not, I was in Susa and I saw a vision, but the uh, reference to the citadel of Susa, which is a, a Persian city, the Persian capital eventually, the citadel of Susa is part of, is embedded in the vision. So that does seem to be right. I mean, what we have here is uh, pointed out at the beginning that uh, we have different sorts of beasts than we had in the previous vision. There we had a lion and a bear and a leopard and then some undescribable something. Here we have familiar animals. They're not less dangerous or fierce, but they are um, a ram and a goat. Um, and that puts us, I think, uh, again, rather than this kind of cherubic setting, it puts us in the setting of, of sacrifice. Uh, we're kind of anticipating as uh, the fact that Belshazzar's, uh, it's, this is in the reign of Belshazzar, as James said, is uh, linked up with Belshazzar's defilement of the, of the temple vessels. And it seems like we have, from the beginning of the vision, we already are oriented to be thinking in terms of uh, the sacrificial system, the temple system, by the, by the beasts that are being depicted here. It's a ram, which is the a required animal for an asham, a uh, trespass offering, and a male goat, which is the required offering for a, a purification or sin offering for a leader. Uh, male goats could also be offered for uh, ascension offerings and and uh, for peace offerings, but that's the one that we're specified. We have two sacrificial animals that are depicted here, puts us in that context. There, there is this move from Aramaic in chapter seven to Hebrew in chapter eight, which fits again with the overall feel of the sacrificial animals and the uh, kind of concentration on the temple and the priestly ministry, the regular sacrifice or the regular regular service of the priest, whichever that is. Um, so there's definitely a shift here. thing we, we might also consider is the fact that in terms of the biblical narrative, at least, Susa is going to be a place from which Haman arises in the fairly near future. And so there is this association then with rising anti-Semitism in the, in the region, it seems. Now, he's not going to interact directly with the temple, but God's people are going to be given over to him to some extent, and it's certainly going to look like he's going to start raising himself up against them. Yeah, so uh, and he, you know, acts like a acts like uh, the little horn that comes from the uh, the horn of the the four horns of the goat. He exalts himself. He attacks the saints. Uh, he rises up to the the host and attacks the host. Yeah, that's a that's an interesting connection. There, there is a great deal of emphasis, of course, on the horns. The ram has two horns, uh, one longer than the other, and that's, um, we're told later on, Gabriel tells Daniel that uh, the goat, the, the, the ram rather, is Persia, and the two horns would represent the two uh, peoples that are joined in the Persian Empire, the Medo-Persian Empire, the Medes and the Persians. But uh, the, the two horns are not the same size. One is higher than the other, uh, and the second of them arises last, it, we're told in verse 3, 
and gets and, and becomes longer than the first one. So that's the Persians starting out uh, as a subordinate people to the, to the Medes and then arising, and Cyrus in particular, rising up to become a, a greater ruler than any of the Median kings. But that makes me wonder if uh, we look at the horns, um, those two horns are successive, even though they're both on the same animal. Uh, one of them, the second one comes up after the first one. And it makes me wonder if that gives us a clue to understand how the other horns works, work. Uh, there's one great horn uh, in, between the eyes of the male goat. And then when his horn is shattered, there are four horns that come up following it. Um, those could come up simultaneously and that would fit with uh, the, the, uh, the, the Greek empire, Alexander's empire breaking up into four sections. But uh, they could also come up successively, which is, would be not, ju not just um, four uh, regions of a Hellenistic empire, but four different phases of the Hellenistic empire that lead up to the, to the, the smaller horn that comes up, the little horn that comes up beginning in verse nine. Um, and I, I don't know that we need to put those, uh, uh, choose between those. It seems like both of them fit with certain different ways of reading the passage. Uh, one of the interesting things that, um, regardless of how we do that, it's interesting that um, the little horn ends up being the eighth, the eighth of the horns that are that are um, depicted. There are two horns on the head of the ram. There's one great horn on the head of the male goat, then four more um, that come from after the first one is shattered, and then the little horn is the eighth, which puts him in the position as kind of a um, eighth day messianic figure, which which fits with his kind of um, hubris and his attempt to take control of, of the uh, temple system. But I wonder, what, what, do we, what do you think about that idea that the horns are not, not, um, not to be seen, or maybe not only to be seen as simultaneous, um, but as a succession? And so we have um, uh, the, the, uh, the history of the male good is actually a history that takes place over several phases. Uh, there are some other... There are some other features of this that feed into that and make that uh, plausible, I think. One is that uh, this vision here, according to verse 1, uh, is after that which appeared to me at first, which might mean, of course, and of course it does mean that it's uh, temporally after. It's, th it's two years or three years later. But it also might connect the two visions um, so that the little horn in Daniel's vision in chapter 7 is the little horn in chapter 8. Uh, that, would, that would mean that the little horn, both little horns, or the single little horn, which is referred to twice, occur um, or, or come about at the same time, which is the time of the end, verse 17. Um, it's always seemed odd to me when I've taught through this before, or preached through this, that you have this larger vision in Daniel 7, which uh, goes all the way up to the Messianic age. And then in Daniel 8, uh, you have this vision that, at least classically, uh, refers to Antiochus and the mid-2nd century BC uh, desolation of the temple and all that. Um, that just seemed odd to me. It seems almost out of place. But if indeed these horns or are, these four horns are successive, then that will bring you to the time of the end, which is the time of the end of the old world, the end of the old covenant, however you want to put it. Um, and it would seem to be 
more consistent with uh, the connection between uh, the vision in the first year and the vision in the third year, all dealing with the same time period, but from, but from different perspectives uh, and highlighting different uh, features of the time period. One of the challenges that we have in, in interpreting these visions is that it unites a number of these visions and including things like Nebuchadnezzar's first dream include various stages, but also um, simultaneous of a situation that pertains for a period of time and working out which elements belong to successive stages, for instance, in the mutation of an empire and what features belong to its more general state is a challenge at many points. One thing that can help us is considering some of the parallels between elements of these different prophecies and visions. So we have, for instance, in the case of the two horns of the first animal here, a correspondence with the two sides, or at least by implication, of the bear in chapter seven. So the bear is raised up on one side, which seems to correspond with the higher horn in this case, the raising up on one side may not be just its more general state, but something that occurs at a period of time as the Persian Empire becomes dominant within the Medo-Persian Empire. And then we can also think of things like the four horns here corresponding with the four heads of the leopard-like creature in um, chapter seven. And so those elements would seem to quite naturally map onto each other. And we can also maybe think of the four wings as associated with the four horns. The question of those four horns, I'm not persuaded that these are successive stages. Um, there's the first horn and then that first horn, the stage seems to be the breaking of that first horn into four different horns rather than the breaking of that first horn, the arising of another horn, and then the breaking of that followed by another, etc. Rather, the one horn is broken and then arise the four. And I think a further thing that I'd give in support of that is the way that it describes the, um, the horn that arises from one of them. It doesn't specify that it's the last one, it's just from one of them. And that, it seems to me, suggests that these are um, this is a state of affairs that pertains within the Greek Empire, as I believe it is, and it says later on, after the death of Alexander. Yeah, the good points, Alistair. Uh, I think you're uh, uh, that that's that has some has some force to it than seeing the uh, the little horn as uh, something that's coming uh, within the within the Hellenistic Empire after Alexander. I guess, as I said, I, I'm not sure that we have to choose one or the other, because I think that <clears throat> uh, the idea that this little horn is Antiochus uh, certainly fits with what's said, and it, it fits with the prominence that Antiochus has in, um, in, the, in later, later Jewish literature, in the, in the Maccabees, the, the, uh, the accounts of the Maccabean revolt, and so on. Uh, which was a, a huge episode in this period of history. So I think that's, that certainly fits. But I, it, it, uh, it occurs to me that somebody living past that 
uh, on the other side of Antiochus and thinking about Daniel 8 uh, might also be recognizing um, parallels with between Antiochus and some later figures. Uh, James Jordan suggests the Herods, for example, uh, that would have uh, certain parallels with Antiochus that would fit a more, um, uh, the, again, the successive reading of the horns rather than a simultaneous reading of the horns. So I'm not sure that, I'm not sure that they're necessarily um, uh, at, uh, in, uh, in opposition to each other. Maybe, maybe different levels or phases of interpretation of the same vision. To support that, we could maybe observe the way that um, in Revelation and even in Jesus's Olivet Discourse, we have elements of the prophecies of Daniel that refer to earlier stages taken to refer to the time of AD 70, things like the abomination of desolation, which it seems refers to the time of Antiochus first, but then it can also be related to that later time. And the analogies between these various kings in chapter 11, I think, does a similar, has a similar effect. And we've also noted in chapter 9 and elsewhere, there are analogies between smaller stages, such as the 70-year period of the exile, and then the 70 weeks of years. So events at the terminus of each of those stage stages would seem to have analogies with each other. So I think it would be quite natural to see... Um, figures that occur at one period having analogies at the greater level of the end of the great periods towards the latter days. So right. with that, with that interpretation, are you all taking verse 17 to be, uh, or the phrase, the time of the end to have a, maybe a, 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 lo a longer period of time, uh, just not, not so specific, uh, not a specific reference to the messianic time, like in Daniel 7, but uh, just events uh, leading up to the end, something like that. Yeah, I think that's, that uh, verse is one of the difficulties, I think, for taking, uh, taking this as an interpretation, uh, taking it as Antiochus and the, and the uh, events surrounding the Maccabean period. Um, at, you could you can make it that you can make sense of that it's the end of something, but elsewhere in Daniel that language of the end seems to have something more definitive to it, and as you say, it does seem to port, point to a messianic era. So that verse seventeen in particular um, leans me to think that uh, leans me toward the uh, the idea that this is at least if it's talking about Antiochus, it's at least reaching beyond that to like a a, a greater Antiochus or uh, some, something along those lines. Yeah, I mean, it's um, it's it's literally, I guess, in verse seventeen and and elsewhere, like an an end, as in it doesn't have the article with it, and I think that might be the case everywhere in Daniel, and I, I'm, I guess, prone to think of it as um, an end, you know, a climactic moment of some of some sort. I mean, we mentioned earlier, I think, the way in which um, this whole vision has a sort of ebb and flow to it, various rises and falls and we've spoken about how Babylon seems to go through in itself a similar pattern of events to world history at large and it ends with this ungodly sort of arrogant figure and um feels to me like Daniel is wanting to portray sort of various ends various phases towards of history each of which have 
an end, you know, a, a, a climax to them. And um, so I, I'm, I'm given, I guess, to see this as uh, an end, but obviously an end which will have a, a later fulfilment at a greater time. We can maybe see this as the telescopic character of um, prophetic, um, of the prophetic vision of the future, that there is the day of the Lord, which can be this more immediate judgment in a particular period of time within Israel's history, that is looking forward to a more climactic judgment at some point where Israel's um, entire history to that point is um, definitively wrapped up or consummated in some way. And then the great event of the day of the Lord, which we await at the consummation of all things and the final resurrection. And that discussion of the end can include on the one level, the immediate end that we look forward to, that day of the Lord that's most immediate to us, um, that's waited maybe in uh, the next 40, 100 years or however, and then the great day of the Lord, which is the wrapping up of all of history. All of those realities are bound up within that one expression, and each fulfilment of that gives us a sense of the whole prophetic complex of that reality of the day of the Lord. And we can see similar things with concepts like the new covenant. The new covenant in some senses comes in with the return from exile. In other senses, it's await, it awaits the work of Christ. In other senses, it awaits the events after AD 70. In other senses, it awaits the final resurrection and the restoration of all things and the new creation. And so rather than just making the referent exclusive to a particular event, we should maybe recognize the typological shape of these realities in the same way as we might talk about the type, typological reality of the Messiah or the Davidic King, which in one sense has reference to David, in one sense it has reference to Solomon and then to other figures along the line, Josiah, etc. And then it refers to Christ and then it refers to his, the fullness of his reign. And so rather than seeing it as exclusive, the concept of the end, I think, can be seen to have multiple, multiple reference. Uh, uh, James, what, what, uh, what, what's coming to an end in the time of Antiochus? That's not a challenging question. I'm just curious about how you take it. If you're, if you're seeing this as um, predominantly a prophecy about that period, what is coming to an end? I guess one thing that's coming to an end is the interaction between the goat specifically and Israel. So the fall of Antiochus, pretty soon afterwards, I think they entered in, the Jews entered into an agreement with the Romans. And so there was certainly like an, an end to a particular phase of history in, in, in that respect. Yeah, interesting. Thanks. Um, so you have a, you, you're a transition from kind of uh, Hellenistic dominance to Roman dominance of Israel. Right. Yeah, maybe we could uh, circle back a little bit. We've, we've kind of rushed ahead to, uh, to talking about the little horn. I think I started that, but a, a, a couple of thoughts about uh, um, some of the earlier vision. We talked about the, the uh, Persian ram and the symbolism of the two horns and the conquests. And then the male goat comes from the West I think that's that's an interesting uh, that's an interesting uh, detail. Um, uh, we've had the enemies come from the north. We've had enemies come from the east. Uh, this is a Western power 
if you think about this in terms of the orientation of the sanctuary, then this is uh, coming from the innermost sanctuary. It's kind of uh, uh, an invader or a conqueror coming from the West is coming from the throne, from the, the Ark of the Covenant and moving out. Uh, and that movement is, is, uh, is, an, is a, uh, um, I think uh, it's fairly unprecedented. It's, it may be unprecedented, but it's fairly rare in the Old Testament that a conqueror would come from that direction. And then he comes in wrath. And I'm, I take that as uh, the wrath of uh, the Lord. Um, but it's also, um, uh, this uh, represents Alexander's and Alexander's rapid, speedy conquests of the ancient Near East. Uh, and uh, uh, refers to his anger uh, against Persia. Uh, he was um, uh, seeking vengeance for some of the Persian attacks on Greece, and he was going to teach the Persians a lesson. Uh, so a, a couple of the details that it would fit with the, the, West, the, Western, the Western origin uh, as the throne and then wrath coming, some uh, a character filled with wrath coming from that direction uh, fits with some other uh, episodes that we have throughout the Bible where wrath comes out from before the Lord, which means it comes out from the, uh, from the throne, which is in the westernmost part of the sanctuary, and it bursts out against, uh, usually against Israel, uh, moving west to east. I wonder if the Jews reading this and making this transition from uh, chapter 7 to 8 with the with the beasts, with the cherubic, cherubic uh, animals coming to a ram and a goat, would they have thought about their own uh, daily and um, otherwise sacrifices using these rams and goats? And would they have thought, okay, this, these, these are the Gentile nations that we are interceding for, that we are praying for, that we are asking God to, uh, to deliver, to, to help, to do what God ever, the Lord wants to do with them. And so w when um, uh, Babylon is depicted as a lion, uh, and, uh, but now all of a sudden Persia is depicted as a ram, uh, and Greece as a goat, so that they are actually in their actions here, answering the petitions of the people of God to come and deliver God's people, first of all, from uh, the apostate or at least the declining and deteriorating uh, Babylonian empire. And then also, uh, of course, the, the ram then becomes a savior of the, of the Israelites in many ways, especially through Cyrus. But then there's a falling away, there's an apostasy, and the goat comes in answer to God's people's prayers and delivers them from uh, their new enemy, which is the Persians. And then the goat eventually, of course, uh, makes himself great and exalts himself and has to be brought down as well, I'm just wondering if, if that if that dimension uh, is a, a faithful way of reading this. There does seem to be something of a domestication of the beasts that we see in chapter seven. So the beasts, corresponding beasts in chapter seven, are the um, leopard and the bear, 
And the bear, the first one, the Medes and the Persians, is quite a terrifying beast that um, the ram that corresponds to it simply does not seem to have the same terrifying aspect to it. And it suggests perhaps that the sovereignty of the Lord and his people that's established at the end of chapter seven casts a sort of retrospective um it works back upon this vision in a way that domesticates the terrifying beast that we formerly met in chapter seven. And now they're presented in the aspect of tame animals, animals that would be used in the regular agricultural life of Israel, and which would also be part of the sacrifices. These are beasts under man that can be included within the process of Israel's worship, one of two of the five animals. And so on that reading, it would seem that this is presenting a different way of looking at the Gentiles than we see in chapter seven. There are two perspectives, they're both valid, but one presents these empires as these terrifying monsters that almost threaten the sovereignty of God, that God's sovereignty has to be established over against them. Um, with the rising up of the Son of Man and the saints. But here, the beasts are no longer these terrifying chaos-like beasts, but animals that are domesticated, that still produce violence and damage and can threaten the saints under certain conditions, but they're more under God's control. Yeah, I think that's right. Uh, I, I, the last point you made, I think, is important to remember that they are still destructive animals. But their domestication is a good way to put it. They're kind of brought into the realm of Israel's liturgical life, uh, these empires. And I think Jeff is right that the, the practical way that that's done is because Israel is offering sacrifice and praying on behalf of the nations. And specifically on behalf of the nations, that, you know, they're seeking the peace of the city where they've been exiled. They're specifically praying on behalf of the nations uh, that, uh, that rule them. Another way of looking at the same thing could be to phrase it in terms of familiarity. And so chapter seven involves a number of bizarre things and one beast which has kind of metallic uh, claws and, and strange detail or teeth, perhaps it is, and strange details attached to it um, set against the backdrop of this great sea um, and all in Aramaic. And now we're kind of back into just more standard Hebrew um territory i guess it, it's a lonely experience from um daniel's point of view but he, he's um uh, writing in hebrew and seeing animals which are I guess, a bit more earthly a bit more familiar and and so uh I, I wonder if that's another dynamic at play when keeping with the the, the kind of sacrificial setting of the animals uh, when the little horn uh, appears in verse nine uh, the target of his action is the host um, they're called stars, but I think the host there is a reference to the host of Israel. The host of Israel will are like stars in the heavens, as uh, the Lord told Abraham. Uh, we have the stars representing the tribes, the sons of uh, Jacob in uh, in Joseph's dream. So we have that association. We also have hosts as uh, the the company of Levites and priests who serve in the temple, uh, and that becomes a target. So this is. This is a horn that's not just uh, seeking to conquer the land, but now the specific target has become the sanctuary and Israel as the host 
he uh, casts down or removes the tamid. Uh, that's translated as regular sacrifice in verse 11. But in, in James's uh, essay on this, I think he rightly argues that tamid should be understood as a more general term, not just for the the daily daily cycle of sacrifices and the uh, and the cycle of sacrifices for feast days, but all of the regular activities of the temple. Uh, there are various uh, things that take place in the holy place: uh, the, the the trimming of the lamps, the the uh, care of the bread, the offering of incense. All of those are described as tamid, the maintenance of the fire on the bronze altar. All of those are continuous actions. So I think when the when uh, the little horn attacks the Tamid and shuts down the Tamid. It's the entire, it's the entire temple operation. But that's 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 a shift from other things that we've seen, uh, other attacks that we've seen in visions. In, in the vision Daniel seven didn't indicate that it's a an attack specifically on uh, the hosts, on the holy ones, uh, or on the holy things. Again, it's more like Belshazzar's own um, kind of uh, uh, his his uh, misuse of the uh, of the temple vessels back in chapter five. Right. And in terms of the way that's portrayed in the vision, Peter, um, that gets described as a, a kind of heavenwards um, uh, direction of travel. And so from verse four on onwards, the direction of travel of the various um, uh, animals is uh, west, north, south. It, it's all kind of on the, what's the word, on the horizontal um, plane. But it, it's this little horn, which um, again, in verse nine, starts with the normal um, directions. Um, we've got south and east, but then it goes towards the glorious land. And so it's heading kind of Israelwards. And then we get this new direction of travel. It grew great, even to the host of heavens. And so it, it's that, uh, it's interference with the sanctuary it seems to be described in terms of the vision as this completely new vector of, of travel, which brings it into contact with new realities, heavenly realities. We could even see it against the backdrop of chapter four, where the um, uh, tree is able to grow for a certain amount of time, but then it comes into the clouds, uh, into contact with the clouds of heaven, at which point it, it invokes God's uh, attention and ultimately wrath. And, and um, I think the same thing is, is going to happen here. Who do you take to be the prince of the hosts? So I certainly, at least in terms of its immediate reality, I'm tempted to just think of it in terms of the high priest. Um, and so becoming as great as the high priest, I, I take to mean um, assuming or usurping his authority in, in some way. Um, I'm, not say, I'm not saying it can't have uh, uh, greater realities than that, but I think like it's immediate historical fulfillment i'll take to be the high priest and and this would be antiochus and his uh encroachment into the temple and his uh stopping the regular priestly service in the temple right yeah well have you got a different take on it jeff i i don't really know no, i'm not trying to challenge you at all i'm just trying to figure it out uh it, it's um, <laughs> it, it's easy to go from one to the other, um, and they seem to be related. And, and what I mean by that is uh, taking James Jordan's view that this is about the time of the end, and this is about the Herods, and about uh, <clears throat> uh, Jesus, and the defilement of the temple, or even all, all the way up to A.D. 64 and A.D. 70, 
um, and um, and all that. I mean, I can see that, but I can also see how easily this is interpreted to be Antiochus and what he does. So I, I don't know, honestly. I, I'm kind of torn between the two, and and you know, I like Alistair's idea that this is typological, and it. Uh, it's not an either or, maybe it's a both and, and it, there's a greater uh, kind of more dangerous and uh, awful uh, fulfillment of this at the time of Jesus and the apostles. Right. I mean, as you say, we're very familiar with this kind of thing in Messianic prophecy and the way in which each king, almost in a Psalm 2 um, sense, each king fulfilled um, something, but ultimately fell short and, and the promise kind of rolls over and uh, escalates until its final fulfillment in the Messiah. And, and I don't see why the uh, the anti-Messiah, if, if you like, can't ha have the same characteristic in terms of prophecy. We have a reference to the Prince of the Covenant in chapter 11, verse 22, that the Prince of the Covenant is broken before this figure. Again, I think the figure in view is chiefly Antiochus. And there the background is um, the rivalries between the Tobiads and the Anayads, the two um, priestly factions, the factions wanting to Hellenize the Tobiads and the Anayads who are more faithful conservative Jews. And the that period of time is one in which there's a mass apostasy and that's supported by the Seleucid king Antiochus Epiphanes, who, unlike previous kings, actually does not just threaten Israel as a political entity, but actually threatens the very heart of its worship and seeks to pervert its worship, first of all, by trying to um, switch the um, high priest from Anias to Jason and then to from Jason to Menelaus and then at that point seeking to steal things from the temple and then trying after his humiliation in Egypt to come back and to pervert the worship of the temple even further by um, setting up the worship of the temple to um, Jupiter and then along with that um, sacrificing pigs and all of these sorts of actions that are direct assault, not just upon Israel in its um, regular um, civil life, but Israel in its worship and against the God that they worship. And so the striking at the stars and the um, authorities of heaven, I think, is part of what's being referred to there. One of the purposes, I think, in Daniel's re reference to the sacrifice is the um I think Peter used the phrase, the, the, the tamid, the, the continual, is just the way in which referring to it as the continual stresses the fact it, it, it was something that was to be done in a completely unbroken way. Whatever else was going on in Israel at the time, this service was to be offered regularly and, and repeatedly and, and without break. And it then, I guess, just stresses the huge significance of what's going to happen in this um, vision that I guess from the first time, at least since the return from exile, 
um, you know, thousands and thousands, tens of thousands of days, um, the, this, this continual offering would have been uh, offered. Uh, and, and now suddenly with this new um, horn, which arises, that is thrown to the ground, you know, and things are thrown into disarray. And um, uh, there is a break in, in the unbroken offering in, in a way which should never have, never have happened. Do we take this reference to the transgression or the rebellion or the apostasy in verse 12 and verse 13? Do we take that to be a reference to the uh, transgression by Antiochus and his actions in the temple and against the people of Israel? Or do we take this to be the cause of that, the reason why Antiochus is, um, uh, does these things. So, and I'm thinking this, uh, in the history of Israel, ordinarily, if you're going to be invaded by and oppressed by a foreign power, uh, a Gentile power, it's going to be because of your sin, because of your transgression, your uh, rebellion and apostasy, and the Lord then brings these nations in to correct them, to chastise them, to punish them. I mean, that's the case in almost every situation, and we just saw that in um, with uh, Jeremiah and the Babylonian uh, captivity, and and so I'm wondering is is this transgression a reference to what Antiochus does? Or is it a reference to what Israel does that brings about the wrath and trouble that Antiochus brings to the nation? I think one of the things that we see in some of the later prophetic books is the description of pagan nations and empires with language that would usually associate with Israel being described as adulterous, for instance, the suggestion being that they have entered into some sort of relationship with the Lord. And I think that's that might be part of what we're seeing here, that the people of Israel, or the Jews and um, the nations, are entangled together quite intensely. So the these are the guardian beasts. These this is the um, the goat that's arisen, and they're supposed to be a guardian animal. They're included within they're domesticated animals, and yet they're rising up against the Lord, and the relationship between Antiochus and the Jews at this time is what leads to the event. It's not one side or the other. It's not as if the Jews can be hermetically sealed from Antiochus. Rather, it's the Hellenizing desire on the part of um, the Tobiads with Jason and Menelaus and others like that. And they're appealing to Antiochus to actually set them up as the high priests in the stead of Ananias III and others that leads to all of these events playing out. And so there is a Jewish faction appealing to this Gentile power, much as we'll see later on in the story of Rome with the relationship between the Herods and the high priests and the Rome um, behind them, which is the beast that they're riding upon. And so I think that relationship is one that blurs the boundaries between what we'd formerly see is the actions of the Jews leading to judgment by the Gentiles. Now the Jews and the Gentiles are forming these um, alliances that lead to 
sort of spread of apostasy out. We see that also in the story of the book of Acts as the Jews go out on these mission trips that are, as it were, a shadow alongside Paul's mission trips. And so we have the faithful bringing together of Jews and Gentiles and an unfaithful bringing together of Jews and Gentiles. Right. I mean, that, that all sounds, uh, yeah, that, that sounds right to me. So, uh, I mean, are we settling then in answer to Jeff's question that because of the transgression must involve at least in part Jewish sin, as in this is describing the cause of why these previously fairly tame world powers have suddenly turned hostile and have suddenly turned uh, first towards the glorious land and then up towards uh, heaven. Is, is that where we're sort of settling here? That would be my reading of it. Um, mm. The beasts are made are crazed by um, the actions of the Jews themselves. So it's the appeal of Jason to Antiochus and then Menelaus to Antiochus and appealing to his desire for um, greater tribute and taxes and Hellenization of this nation and also the way in which these factions in their wars against each other are appealing to this third Gentile power to intervene and to support their side. And so the original spur for these things is not some pure Gentile initiative, nor is it directly a result of Jewish sin that um, provokes a punishment from this external power. These Jewish and Gentile powers are always intertwined by this point. And so there is, um, as a consequence of these um, alignments, this Gentile power that could otherwise have been tamed and domesticated and used to serve and guard the worship of the Lord actually becomes an enemy against it. That's a remarkable fact, though, isn't it, if it's right, that here we are and we've got a vision about, you know, world powers, things like Greece, uh, Persia, etc. you know, kings who, who took the world by storm. And yet, ultimately, what's dictating to some extent their rise and fall and ebb and flow and so on, basically events within a tiny little city called Jerusalem and one little sanctuary in, in the midst of it kind of thing. And what priests are doing there, uh, having these enormous kind of world history shaping uh, consequences, which is just a remarkable thing when you think about it. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.